Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty, and it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. It seems like finally, after a really, really long time, the United States may be ending its presence in Afghanistan. President Joe Biden announced this week that the U.S. would withdraw all of its combat forces by September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, and very close to 20 years of the United States being in Afghanistan. Is this going to happen, really? And what does it mean for both Afghanistan and the United States if it does happen? Those are the questions that we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey, Man, news 20 years in the making, my goodness. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird uh, that this has lasted so long. Uh, like, narcissistically, it reminds me that I'm older than I thought I was because I really remember, like, I was very aware of the beginning of the Afghanistan war. Uh, like, I was around, I was, I was thinking, I was not an adult, but, like, you know, a cognizant human being. And we've been fighting it for 20 years, like, certainly longer than my entire adult life. It's wild. I was definitely an adult, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're older. Sorry, Jen. I did not mean to make you feel really great. Old. Amazing. Oh, making Jen feel old is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's great. No, I mean, it's it's weird talking to, you know, young people these days, kids who don't remember 9-11, who don't remember that whole era. Uh, it's very strange. It's all history book to them. But for many people, it's real life. I mean, that obviously, right, this is the the story of how the United States got into Afghanistan in the first place. The idea was that Afghanistan was the place where Osama bin Laden was hiding out and planned the 9-11 attacks. And the purpose of the invasion was to root out the al-Qaeda presence and, and, and their safe haven so no more future attacks could be planned in the United States. 20 years later, that's not really the issue anymore. The question now is the extent to which the Taliban, which is still, to be clear, an Islamist fundamentalist group, but one that doesn't seem to have designs on multinational terrorism targeting the United States, the degree to which that group takes over parts of Afghanistan that U.S. and allied government forces have denied them for a long period of time. Now, Alex, the rationale for the U.S. staying is that it needs to indefinitely prevent the Taliban from taking over the country until there's some kind of negotiated settlement between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban. Uh, so what are the chances that the U.S. decides it goes back to that kind of thinking as opposed to really firmly following through on the 9-11 withdrawal date? I think it's really low. I mean, the, this administration could not have been clearer that this withdrawal is going to happen despite the conditions. I think it's important to take a quick step back here. So the U.S. is in Afghanistan, for which you alluded to, for two general missions as of now. The first is to train Afghan forces to defend themselves against Taliban advances. In fact, the U.S. has not really been fighting in the war, quote-unquote, for a while. We've just kind of been mostly assisting and training um, Afghan forces. And that's roughly, as of now, 3,500 troops, maybe a little bit less. 
The other is a counterterrorism mission against Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups, roughly 20 terrorist groups, ruffling around in Afghanistan. And so the thinking up till now, quite literally now, was um, that we needed to remain in Afghanistan, even with a small troop presence, to bolster Afghan forces against any Taliban advances and our potential takeover of the capital, Kabul, and other regions, and to continue fighting terrorist groups and, and effectively, you know, killing them with drones or, or night raids with uh, special operations forces and all that. In February 2020, the Trump administration made a deal with the Taliban, which basically said by May 1st of 2021, all U.S. troops had to leave, all NATO troops had to leave, and the Taliban, in effect, had to kind of keep a lid on al-Qaeda activities so they wouldn't be using Afghanistan as a base to plan attacks against the United States. That deal, it should be said, set conditions. Even though it was the U.S. saying we were going to get out by May 1st, there were tons of caveats in that deal. In effect, it was like, look, if al-Qaeda is planning stuff, if we see that the Taliban still very connected to them, if the Taliban attacks American troops and NATO troops during this time, if they escalate violence, then we can delay or this deal is somewhat abrogated. It should be said, there are still Taliban al-Qaeda ties. How close? We're not really sure. There were still attacks on Afghan civilians and Afghan troops. So violence didn't really de-escalate. However, there weren't attacks on Americans and allies. Uh, so for many experts, like the conditions weren't met. The deal has been broken. And yet the Biden administration has gone further than the Trump administration in a sense. They said, we're out. We're not leaving by May 1st. We're going to start our withdrawal you know, no later than May 1st. And we're going to leave by September 11th. But we're going to leave no matter what. No conditions whatsoever. And that's a pretty big deal, because even if the Taliban were to escalate attacks on Afghan troops, on Afghan civilians, heck, even Americans or allies, I mean, both NATO and the U.S. have said, we will respond in kind with violence. Like, if you try to kill us, we will try to kill you. But other than that, like, we are leaving by September 11th, and there will be no U.S. troops in Afghanistan whatsoever. Any counterterrorism forces will move to nearby bases, and they're currently having those deals. So I know that was a long explanation, but all this to say is, they're, they're not really giving themselves any wiggle room. Like, we are out. We are out by September 11th. There won't be any U.S. forces, contractors, anything, it looks like, in Afghanistan within a few months. When you think and, and talk about the consequences of this, what, what seems to be at this point an inevitable U.S. withdrawal, seems to be is the key thing here. Because, again, we were supposed to be gone in May, and that's not going to happen now. So it's possible there's another pushback. But as Alex said, it seems unlikely at this point. Uh, if you look at a map of of what's happening in Afghanistan right now, and you know where the Taliban controls territory, where the government controls territory, and and which, as is often the case in an insurgency, which places are contested with both sides having a presence there, there's a map by the Long War Journal that that shows this stuff, and it is really striking to look at because huge chunks of the country, the vast majority of different areas, are either controlled by the Taliban, are more likely contested. Now, the population centers, including Kabul, tend to be more under government control. But a huge chunk of the country is still not firmly in the government of Afghanistan's hands. And that's the case even when the United States is still here. So one of the, the lines that you hear from critics of the withdrawal plan is that this is the equivalent of the United States leaving Vietnam. You know, and the evacuation of Saigon and the inevitable fall of the South Vietnamese regime, because absent U.S. support, it just can't sustain itself militarily against the Taliban. I don't know if it's that obvious in this case, but there is a decent chance that the Taliban simply overruns 
Afghanistan and, and reinstalls itself as the new governing force as it was before 9-11. Yeah, I mean, if you look at those maps that, that you're talking about, you know, over the past, you know, well, 20 years, but especially in the past several years, they have been very steadily grabbing more and more territory and getting closer and closer to Kabul and other population centers. Like, they are on the outskirts of major cities. They are right there. And, you know, again, like you said, that's with U.S. troops there on the ground. So, you know, when all of that is gone and you just have the Afghan security forces and the Afghan military there, the question is whether they will actually in any way have the both the ability, you know, technical ability and the firepower to actually be able to hold off the Taliban. So I think there is a very good chance that the Taliban could overrun the country. And that would spell disaster for millions of people living in Afghanistan. You know, if you look at what Taliban rule was like, you know, in the 90s when they ruled the country, it was basically like a prison for women. Women were, you know, forced to stay in their homes. They couldn't leave without a male escort. They had to be fully covered except for their eyes. They weren't allowed to work. Girls weren't allowed to go to school. There were routine floggings and stonings of women for adultery, all sorts of kind of horrific things, um, all sorts of other really awful things that I won't get into. But basically, it was just a, a living nightmare for women and for many other people. You know, LGBTQ people don't fare particularly well under Taliban rule. Many minority groups, ethnic minorities are not particularly protected. But you don't really have to even go back to that era, right? The Taliban, like we just said, controls a lot of territory. And in the places where they currently rule, it's actually kind of a mixed bag, right? You have some areas where they're a little bit more lax, um, but you have some areas where it is very, very strict, you know, their fundamentalist version of Islamist rule. And so the idea that after 20 years, and, and yes, there have been 20 really long war-torn years, but they have also been 20 years in which women have had the right to go to work, have had the right to leave their homes, you know, been able to participate in government and in even the negotiations with the Taliban. There are really striking images of, you know, women speaking at these kind of government Taliban negotiations and the Taliban just sitting there. I, and you, I never thought I would even see something like that, right, that they would even be in the same room as women negotiating. So for Afghan women in particular, you know, facing that prospect is really terrifying that every gain that they've they've made in 20 years could essentially be wiped out. And that is incredibly terrifying. And there are, you know, a lot of really good pieces right now that are out there you know, with Afghan women saying like, hey, please don't forget about us. We're still here. But on the other hand, that rationale of, well, we want to make sure that, you know, we we protect women's rights is also part of why the U.S. has been in the country for 20 years, which is, you know, also a difficult conversation to have is whether, you know, that is a reason for continued, you know, military. I don't know if you still want to call it occupation, but continued war for decades, right? Is that or is that not worth fighting a war over. I just want to add one quick thing to this because I think this is an important part of the conversation. There is no question that, as you just laid out, there have been advances for women and and, and LGBTQ folks and children and all that under, uh, th thanks to the U.S. And, and allied forces, you know, fighting on behalf of the Afghan government. But actually, if you look at data, and this is something that proponents of withdrawal are basically saying, is one reason that maybe you shouldn't consider that argument so strongly is well, I'll put it this way. The Georgetown Universities, it's called the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. They effectively rank like how free women are, like how good a country is 
for women. Afghanistan today, after 20 years of war, ranks second to last. The worst is Yemen. So it's not like that much progress really has been made, unfortunately. It's not like we, the because of the U.S. and allied forces that all of a sudden women made vast strides forward. Like, they have. No one's denying that. It is obviously better for a bunch of people in Afghanistan than it was. But it's not great, and it continues to be bad. If you talk to some proponents of withdrawal, they will say, look, keeping U.S. forces there, effectively prolonging a state of war, will only make things worse. Because you're not going to make the situation better for women by continuing the war. You're probably not going to make it a lot better with the Taliban, <laughs> let's be clear. But it's not like this is a sustainable situation, that somehow American troops, and by the way, 3,500 you know, American troops, when there used to be 100,000, you know, 3,500 American troops isn't going to be the difference. And so maybe it's, that reason alone isn't worth staying. Last point, because the Vietnam thing I think is important. There are some who would say that this is, I mean, I think the Biden administration purposefully is trying to do this in a in a way that it doesn't look like Vietnam, that doesn't look like we're just trying to get out sort of willy-nilly. Like, this is supposed to be measured, considered. We're trying to get all of our troops out safely. We're trying to get all of our equipment out safely. We're trying to move to nearby areas. This is not sort of, oh my goodness, you know, the enemy's at the gates and we're fleeing. The concern was that if the U.S. stayed beyond May 1st without announcing a withdrawal, without withdrawing completely, that the Taliban would then go, okay, well, the deal is broken. Our ceasefire is off. We're going to start killing you. And there are all these indications now with the Taliban advancing in major regions in Afghanistan that they were going to do a Tet-like offensive, like like in Vietnam, and start this massive killing spree, which might lead the U.S. to kind of leave, leave with its tail between its legs. Like, that would look more like Vietnam than leaving now. So I think it's true that this was a failure in terms of our general mission, no matter what the Biden administration is saying. They're kind of, look, look we killed bin Laden, al-Qaeda is decimated. Okay, all of that is true, but, like, that's not what the Afghan war has been about, um, these last few years. Um, so, you know, we did fail like in Vietnam, but this this current plan to withdraw in a measured fashion and to sort of focus on other priorities is not a, like, leaving of Saigon situation in my mind. So I, I want to steel man the case against withdrawal for a little bit because I think Alex just did a really good job making the case for withdrawal. And if you want to argue against it, you can say, in, in addition to the very important points that Jen raised about the stakes for the future governance of Afghanistan, yeah, right, you can make it clear that the U.S. withdrawing doesn't end the war, right? The war keeps going. And it may even get worse because if the Taliban thinks that there aren't U.S. forces there to stand in their way, they launch this kind of offensive that Alex was describing on an even larger scale to try to overwhelm the government of Afghanistan before it can get itself together and understand how to operate in a post-American world. A withdrawal on a strict timeline without any kinds of conditions that would allow the U.S. to go back on its word allows the Taliban to prepare precisely for this kind of dangerous offensive. And that can lead to one of two outcomes. Either one, the Taliban victory, which would be catastrophic for all sorts of reasons for people in Afghanistan, which is, I think, the, the strongest case for it, and potentially could lead to the conditions that we were worried about when we invaded Afghanistan in the first place, which is that a bunch of international terrorist groups get to run wild inside Afghanistan and use it as a staging point for terrorism, if not against the U.S. homeland, then against other countries in the region or U.S. forces that are based nearby. So that's that's one bad scenario. And then the other bad scenario is that the war goes on only with the Taliban controlling more territory and things being even bloodier because the Taliban tries to press its advantage. 
without the U.S. there to try to counterbalance its forces and push for a better negotiated settlement than the one that's likely to emerge in a world without the U.S. on the Afghan government's side. So I'm not saying I think this is right. I think this is a genuinely difficult issue, like one of those really hard choices in foreign policy. And I think one, as Alex just did, could make the case very, very strongly for withdrawal as well. I'm not saying I agree with the you know, the case for staying indefinitely or for some kind of more conditions-based withdrawal. I just don't, I find it very difficult and find myself being persuaded by arguments from one side or the other, almost depending on like, you know, which one I read most recently, because I think they both make, they both make very, very, very compelling cases. How Trumpian of you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I don't know. It's hard. I, I, I just don't want yeah. this to be seen as an easy, obvious call, which it is oftentimes by people on both sides of the issue. You know, I think for me, in part, the Vietnam example is obviously, you know, resonates for a lot of reasons in the fact that it was a, you know, very long, very unpopular war that the U.S. was fighting and a lot of people wanted to get out. But I think you can also make some interesting comparisons to the Soviet control of Afghanistan um, because the Taliban essentially came to power following the withdrawal of Soviet troops and the subsequent collapse of the communist Afghan regime. So there are a lot of similarities in the sense that, you know, the Soviet Union was very tired of fighting a war that was costly. They were having their own, you know, very serious economic problems with the, you know, basically ongoing and looming collapse of the Soviet Union itself. And they left, right? They pulled out their troops and left Afghanistan. And, you know, fairly soon after, the Taliban took over Kabul and came to power and was in power for many years. So I think there are a lot of parallels there that are that are useful, but they're also really scary, right? Because that is exactly what happened, and that is exactly what people are warning could happen this time, and that's why. Now, I think it's important to note that the Taliban is not exactly the same organization that it was right. You know, when we toppled it in 2001, quite literally, meaning that it, they're not the same people. A lot of them died. We've been at war for 20 years. The same U.S. forces fighting in Afghanistan today are not the ones who invaded in 2001 for the most part, right? So, you know, it's a different organization. Mullah Omar has been dead for a while, the leader of the Taliban previously. They say that they have moderated, although they wouldn't phrase it that way, but they, you know, flick at kind of more moderate positions, relatively speaking, they say that they will allow women's rights under Sharia. Again, that's going to be their interpretation of Islamic law, though. So they also <laughs> control, you know, if they're in power, they get to say what Sharia says about women, right? Uh, and women aren't going to really get a say back. So I think it's important to look at what they are talking about, right? Currently, they are, you know, the idea is to negotiate a power sharing arrangement, right? To have them be part of the government, and share power with the current Afghan government that the U.S. backs up. And the U.S. has, you know, been very clear, the Biden administration has been very clear that they're going to continue that piece of their involvement, right? We're not leaving Afghanistan in the sense of, like, we're not abandoning them forever and ever on all fronts. We're going to continue the diplomatic push, all of that. I think the question is, you know, what leverage does the U.S. have? What leverage does the Afghan government have in those negotiations once the U.S. leaves? And, you know, does the Taliban have any incentive to stick to, you know, ideas about potentially sharing power? 
Now, they have always been really clear that they're not super interested in sharing power unless it means that there's an Islamic emirate, right? They, they still want it to be an Islamist country, not a country that is, you know, guided by Islamic law, right? It's kind of how it is now. So I think the big question beyond just like the military piece of this, the takeover, right, is, is what happens to the diplomatic kind of political piece of this, right? It's also theoretically feasible that they could make some sort of interim agreement. But even though the Taliban is not you know, necessarily the same group and maybe not quite as as brutal, potentially, it's arguable, um, and, and has moderated some of its positions slightly, it's a big question whether they actually would be willing to be part of a government, right? It's all well and good to say that while you're trying to get the U.S. to leave. But once the U.S. has left, you can go, eh, we're good. Or they could say, look, you know, we don't want to risk the U.S. maybe coming back, anything like that. So we will be part of this. We're tired of war, et cetera, et cetera. That's also possible. Um, I think one other thing, just before we move on, you know, the question of if, if the Taliban were to take over, would they allow terrorists to kind of rule the roost and, and run freely through the country? Some of these groups also do threaten the Taliban. So I think it's important to note, it's not like it's some monolithic, like the Taliban and all of its homies, right, hanging out with like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Like a lot of these, like ISIS in particular, the, the group there, the faction that's there, is mostly made up of splinters off of the Taliban, people who were more extreme, essentially, and didn't like that the Taliban was, you know, doing things like talking to the government and making an agreement with the Americans. So the Taliban also does have in its interest to keep those groups under control or potentially even kick them out if it does take power. So I think it's a little bit more complicated than just terrorists will be running, you know, running around willy-nilly. I think it's also the case that al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is pretty decimated, right? They're not like they were in 2001 when we invaded. But there are pockets of groups of al-Qaeda kind of affiliated groups around the world. And that's kind of the Biden administration's argument is that, well, they're not even really in Afghanistan very much. So we should focus on these other places and we don't really need to be there. So anyway, I just wanted to add, there's a little bit more nuance to the kind of terrorist argument, right? I think the Taliban also has in its interest, I mean, if you go back to 2001, they did, you know, whether or not they were sincere is remains to be seen because we don't know, we didn't take them up on it, but they did offer to turn over bin Laden. So we wouldn't invade. And we essentially said, nah, and we invaded. But that does go to show that they are, I think, very aware that, how they behave in that respect could potentially impact whether they're allowed to continue to rule or whether there's going to be another big kind of push against them. You allow another 9-11 to happen and, it, and it's game over, right? Yeah, I, uh, that, I would say, though, that, and this is one of the main arguments for staying, is, well, you know, we we can't trust the Taliban to keep a lid on al-Qaeda or others. And if there's all this empty space for them to plan a 9-11 style attack like they had, you know, isn't it worth roughly $5 billion a year to keep a small troop presence and, uh, you know, effectively play a whack-a-mole? Like, isn't that a good investment against a 9-11 every year? For some people, that is. Um, and I think that's a fairly strong argument in this case. What I would say, though, is that, you know, 2001 is not the same as 2021. It's a completely different environment for us. Our intelligence capabilities are so much better. We have drones that we're using. Um, we've focused so much more on terrorists over the last two decades that our ability to sort of track what they're up to far exceeds what we, you know, what we could 20 years ago. 
and like even you had uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, this morning basically say, look, if Al-Qaeda were planning something, we would know months in advance. Now, you can buy that or not, but either way, like this is the kind of thing that now the U.S. feels it doesn't need to be in Afghanistan in order to keep fighting terrorists, that it can set up bases around, and that's the negotiations they're having now with Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and others, to, to put assets in those countries and use them as a base of operations to keep fighting terrorists in Afghanistan. They, they don't need to be physically in Afghanistan to do so. Uh, you know, that isn't costless. Um, the risk is incurred here. And and it brings me to sort of my, my general point of all of this, which is, you know, Biden's decision to end America's involvement in the war is not a bloodless decision, right? Everything we've been talking about here is a, is bloody. It is going to be blood. Like, there is likely going to be fighting between the Taliban and the Afghan government, whether you or not you believe Afghan forces can fend off the Taliban, they're going to try, and that leads to a revitalized and enhanced civil war. You're going to see likely a worse situation for for minorities and, and women, as we as we mentioned. Uh, America's war might be ending, but Afghanistan's problems aren't. Right, is sort of my tagline here, and that's the sort of risk Biden is incurring in a sense. And the political one is, and I don't think we should, we can discount this is there eventually could be images of bloody fighting of the Taliban in Kabul, in government buildings, on the front pages of newspapers, on your TV screens. And that is just a bad, bad look for a Biden administration. And it could cause a same sort of situation in which after the U.S. left Iraq and ISIS took over and, you know, Syria and Iraq, American forces went back in. That is a risk Biden is incurring. So it's not like we're going to be out forever, perhaps. It is possible that we have to go back in. But still, my main point is, you know, this isn't like, you know, we're washing our hands, we're out completely, and everything's fine. No, no, no. There are still many, many problems, and they're mostly going to be felt by Afghans. Yeah, though, I do want to mention, before we take a quick break, that we haven't really talked about the cost to American soldiers yet, which is significant, right? While it's true there'll be some kind of counterterrorism presence in the region, it'll be a significantly scaled-down version of what we're doing right now. And right now, you've got thousands of American troops. It's not at the 100,000 peak that it once was, but still, we're talking thousands of people who are put in harm's way, some of whom die, who are sent on multiple tours, who are kept away from their families, who incur all of the harms that veterans incur from combat— PTSD, lost limbs, right? Really serious, serious stuff. And so when we're talking about the future of Afghanistan, I think it's it's very difficult to say which option will be better for Afghanistan. But I think one thing that's certain is that fewer American troops will die as a result of a withdrawal. And that counts for something. I think that's something significant and important, and I, I don't want that to get lost in this conversation. We're going to take a quick break now. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the sort of broader picture of Afghanistan, not just what happens in terms of the immediate U.S. presence and the future of the country, but what the decision to get out of Afghanistan says about U.S. foreign policy more broadly and the Biden administration's thinking on the world. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty, and it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. 
Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the Biden administration's seemingly inevitable withdrawal from Afghanistan. They have announced a withdrawal deadline unconditionally on September 11th, 2021. Uh, and, and so far, we focused more on what this means for Afghanistan as a country. And now I sort of want to zoom out. And, and Jen, maybe start with you talking about what this tells us, this, the decision to commit so strongly to the Afghanistan withdrawal about the Biden administration's incipient foreign policy approach? Well, I mean, I think it says a lot about just kind of more generally where American kind of sentiment has gone over the past 20 years, right? There is no more appetite for wars abroad. We have had two decades of war. And I think everyone has kind of understood that going back to at least, you know, Obama, he came in saying he wanted to get out of Afghanistan, he wanted to get out of Iraq. Uh, he ended up not doing that, right? He ended up doing the surge to Afghanistan. And then when he did withdraw troops from Iraq, as Alex mentioned in the first half, he had to end up sending many of them back in to fight ISIS. So, you know, we saw that kind of impetus starting, arguably started under the Bush administration, but it has increased, increased, you know, as the years have gone on. I think Trump very much kind of rode into power in part on that sentiment as well. The entire America First you know, project was very much meant to be leaving foreign wars, bringing troops home, spending that money instead on rebuilding America, on infrastructure and things like that. He also didn't quite succeed in pulling it off, though he did get the deal that is, you know, what the Biden administration is essentially saying they are abiding by, by withdrawing troops starting May 1st. So I think part of it is not so much even the Biden administration and part of it is just kind of a recognition that this is where American, you know, sentiment is and there's no more political will whatsoever to keep fighting these wars. The other thing is that, you know, Biden was very much involved. I know Alex will probably talk about this more, but in the Obama administration's kind of calculations and, and strategy with Afghanistan and he opposed the surge. And, you know, I think Biden himself has, you know, not been super excited to to stay in Afghanistan. On the other hand, I think it's really striking, and Alex flicked at this a bit. He very much had all through the campaign, through the 2020 campaign, Biden had been very clear. He was being pushed, um, you know, from the from the left, from the progressive side, from more progressive candidates who were saying, you know, we will withdraw, you know, we if we are elected president, we will withdraw troops right away. He wouldn't go that far. He would only commit to withdrawing troops within his first term, so his first four years in office. There were, you know, others, Liz Warren, Pete Buttigieg, other kind of more lefty candidates who were pushing for like faster withdrawals and stuff like that. And what was striking is that Biden would never commit to all troops. He kept saying over and over, I think there should be a residual force. I think we should leave a few thousand people, you know, a few thousand troops there as a small footprint counterterrorism force to make sure that, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS don't threaten the American homeland, don't threaten American interests, et cetera, et cetera. He maintained that basically up until yesterday. And it was really kind of shocking to hear that that is apparently not part of this plan, that they are actually very much going to move everyone, it seems, out and then re-kind of deploy in the region nearby so that, yes, they can go in and out if they want to, but that there won't be, it seems, a residual counterterrorism force. Now, that's really striking because something changed, right? Something seems to have changed recently. And now this, you know, 
this decision came out of a, a lengthy review process, a policy review that was started when Biden came into office. They didn't just make this you know, decision willy-nilly. There's reporting from Politico out that the Biden administration actually had to kind of push back on the Pentagon with you know, generals saying that we need to stay, we need to stay, and Biden saying the Pentagon is not going to make this decision. I'm sorry. I'm the president. I'm going to do this. Um, but it's really interesting to see that he has just kind of abandoned that idea and decided we're done. And now, for me, that raises a lot of interesting questions, right? Like, what is it that convinced him that even a residual presence wasn't necessary? Now, you know, maybe it was intel showing that, well, there isn't really that much of an al-Qaeda presence there, et cetera. We don't really need to be there. Look, we can do this from other areas, et cetera. But it could also very much just be a more of a political calculation in terms of priorities, right? He is dealing with a massive pandemic that has, you know, very much hurt the American economy and trying to get the economy back on track, trying to, you know, do this massive vaccine rollout on a scale that the world has never seen before, you know, trying to rebuild America's infrastructure, trying to do all this stuff on climate change, right? And maybe he just very much was like, I don't want to deal with Afghanistan anymore. We could use that money elsewhere, et cetera. So for me, I think that's the most interesting question about like what changed in Biden's calculus. Um, because it, I think it it does suggest maybe a different approach even toward kind of other areas where he has been more centrist than some progressives would have really liked. They have, you know, wanted him to be more, get all troops out right away. And he was always a little bit more in the kind of center lane of, well, within reason. And so for me, it raises the questions too of like, is he going to do this on a lot of other decisions, right? And it shows that he is able to change his mind and is not set in one lane. So I think that's really fascinating. One thing in that political article, which I really liked, Jen, that I, uh, the article and I think this point about the decision-making process is how clear it was uh, from the way the article laid out what happened inside the White House review of Afghanistan policy, that the military got overridden. And I don't say this because I think the military has congenitally bad judgment or because I— uh, I don't know. I just I think that they were obviously incorrect about the desire to have a residual force in Afghanistan. I mean, it is it's good to see a civilian leader saying, thank you, military, but you don't get the final say on defense policy. Too often, I think U.S. foreign policy is over-militarized, both in the sense of trying to solve problems with the military that can't be solved with the military or could better be solved by some sort of diplomatic or economic engagement, uh, and also in the sense of the military getting an outsized vote in the way that we conduct foreign policy and especially decisions on military intervention. Like, while right. their perspective is invaluable, like, ultimately, the military's job is to lay out what they think is possible and what's not possible. They don't and shouldn't be making normative judgments. That's the the job of the elected officials running the government. And so for Biden to be like, thank you, military, I know that you want this thing, but I think there are good reasons that suggest we should withdraw, to me is a sign, an early sign, of, of a healthy reassertion of civilian authority in U.S. foreign policy and of a White House willing to make difficult calls uh, that Democrats in the past who had been afraid of being labeled anti-military and too peacenicky, et cetera, had perhaps been unwilling to make. I see the political article and the general discussion uh, slightly differently. It is true, and, and I, as I reported as well, that the military, the military leaders were in favor of prolonging the American engagement in Afghanistan. 
where I think the the article misses the mark, the political article misses a bit of the mark, is it made it seem like, you know, it is the military's decision. It is always the president's decision. I know you weren't saying that, Zach. But, like, it was true that the last four presidents, or three presidents, rather, were convinced by military arguments and arguments by some civilians, let's be clear. But they were kept saying, like, if, you know, if we stay another six months, we'll turn a corner. If we leave, the Taliban's going to take over. We will lose our leverage in any kind of future peace deal. There's only a little bit more we need to train the Afghan forces or to, to prop up the Afghan government. Like, a, a lot of this was that argument that, again, military and civilian folks meant. I think it matters here. In, in I think two things matter here. The first is that Biden, during the Obama years, was skeptical of Afghanistan. What he didn't want was a... Um, counterinsurgency mission, which is effectively what we'd done for most of the amount of time we were there. What he wanted was a counterterrorism mission, which is a few number of troops. We occasionally go in and we, and we take out al-Qaeda, and then that's basically all we do. And that's kind of what we're up to now, except we won't have troops in Afghanistan. So Biden finally gets what he wants in a, in a sense. I talked to uh, uh, Chuck Hagel, who was you know, Obama's secretary of defense for a time, and I, kind of said, and I kind of almost said exactly that. I was like, Biden got exactly what he wanted, and Hagel chuckled and was like, yeah, now he's got what he wanted. Um, so there's that. The other, and Biden alluded to this in his speech announcing the withdrawal, was like, I am the only president in 40 years who had a child fighting in war. The last three presidents who oversaw, I mean, George W. Bush was in the National Guard for a little bit. But other than that, like, you know, Obama didn't serve, Trump didn't serve, Biden didn't, but he at least has the credibility of like, I had a son who fought in a war. And that matters. And that, you know, changes his perspective, but also gives him at least some credibility in the minds of, of certain military folks um, who might in the back of their heads go, and this happens often, he didn't serve, what does he know? But the fact that he had a child who served um, and one who, of course, passed, that weighs. Another thing here, and, I, and Jen was talking about this, about, you know, the there's been a movement towards, you know, tire, everyone's tired with the war, everyone wants out of the war. That is accurate. Uh, there's no question about that. And progressives have been pushing for this for a while. That said, the way the Biden administration is framing this, to me, seems politically convenient. I, I still stand by Biden wanted out. He's been skeptical of the arguments the military and others have been making. But the way they're selling this is, look, not only can we not really advance in Afghanistan, but also we have other priorities. We've got China. We've got domestic uh, you know, renewal. We've got all these things. And yet they're still committing to fund the Afghan military and the Afghan government and spend a lot of time and energy on diplomacy. So now granted, it's Congress's decision on whether or not we continue to fund Afghanistan. But like, it's not that that money is somehow like going elsewhere. I mean, a lot of it will, but it's not like we're stopping our financial commitment. So this is really about just having troops in Afghanistan, to be clear, which is symbolic and is important. As Zach mentioned, it is good that we won't have troops in harm's way. They've been in less in harm's way as of late, but they would still be in harm's way if they were in Afghanistan. So that in and of itself is a, is a good but if our diplomatic commitment is going to continue, if our financial commitment is going to continue, this is not about, well, we need resources elsewhere. This is really about the symbolism of ending Afghanistan because people want it to end. I think that's right. And going back to, to Zach's point about civilian control of the military, you know, I think you made a really good point, Zach, about how Democrats were often worried about being seen as, you know, anti-military or not tough enough, not strong enough on counterterrorism, things like that, right? And I think in some ways, Donald Trump helped that um, by yeah. being a Republican who was very anti-war in some cases. <laughs> Put a big giant caveat on that because he yeah, yeah, also, I was about to say, other, otherwise you're going to make me mad because you edited a piece of mine about how that's a lie on some fronts. Yeah, he, he Anti-long-term engagement. Right. He also <laughs> kind of wanted to invade Venezuela just for funsies and for the sure. oil. Uh, so yeah, 
in some cases. But he wanted to end the war in Afghanistan and end, you know, U.S. troop presence in Iraq. Like, he was very clear about that. He wanted to bring troops home from Syria, etc. He was clear about that from day one. And he openly complained about my generals, as he called them. You know, he would grumble openly that they don't want me to leave Afghanistan. They won't let me, right? They, you know, they keep trying to talk me into staying, and I don't want to. And he would be really mad. And yet he didn't ever actually end up pulling troops out. Now, he did end up making, like I said, the agreement that would have seen, you know, troops withdraw. But I think, you know, the fact that a Republican and such, you know, the, I guess if you call him the id of the Republican Party, as Trump was very much, you know, I don't think anyone could call him soft on terror in terms of his rhetoric and terms of, you know, how he portrays himself. You know, he did increase bombing of ISIS and help, you know, military effort, destroy the caliphate, et cetera, right? So we had some credibility there in that sense on at least overseas terrorism, if not domestic terrorism. And I think he gave top cover in some ways to Democrats who also had that anti-war or kind of skepticism of military intervention, let's call it, rather than than anti-war. I think it's a little safer or just, you know, fatigue over the war. And so I think in that way, he did kind of open the door to Biden pushing back against the generals and actually just saying, nope, it's my decision. Thank you. I appreciate your service. But, you know, this is my call. And so I, I think to his credit, Trump does, you know, did help kind of pave the way for that. I mean, I think that's true. In fact, uh, very, very briefly, I think Biden making this announcement now, he should thank Trump in a way. Trump paved the way by that Taliban agreement. Let's not forget during the campaign, Biden was clear that he was going to end the war in his first term, right? but not in his first year. The ones who were making that case were Pete Buttigieg and Tulsi Gabbard. Biden was the one being like, no, that's too soon. And so the fact that he's doing it like by September, right? He's going even before Buttigieg and Gabbard in a way. The, the way he explained it in his speech was, look, maybe I wouldn't have done this deal. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have done what Trump did. But like, it was an agreement with the US government and that matters. And that counts. And so I kind of have to follow it. And that's a way to repair any any sort of adversaries or allies trust in, well, you know, was Trump an aberration or not? Like, it doesn't matter. The U.S. government is the U.S. government, regardless of who is in office. And so he might have accelerated his own timeline. But I think he's also genuine in that, you know, the arguments for why, why we should stay in Afghanistan were the same. Like, nothing is new here, <laughs> right? This is a 20-year war. And I just think Biden at this point was like, really, we're going to somehow stop the Taliban with 3,500 troops? Really, we're going to somehow rebuild the Afghan government with 3,500 troops? Really? Like, it, it, it just no argument really made sense. The arguments that did make sense to, to him and I think to me and others were there is a commitment that we've made. Like, it was clear that NATO allies were not, or at least NATO was not really feeling leaving. Um, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg had constantly said this should be a conditions-based issue. And just uh, on Wednesday with Blinken, um, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin by his side for the first time was like, no, it's the right time to leave. And we're going to we said we're going to go in together and out together like he changed his tune because of this decision. Uh, so all of this is sort of a new scenario here. Um, but all this to say is that, like, uh, it's interesting. I think the, the Trump helped Biden with the politics. The, the general American feeling of the war helped him. And I just think no one really convinced him at this point that this was a war worth continuing. I, I think there's one bigger issue I, I want to talk about before we go, um, which is the broader question of counterterrorism in U.S. foreign policy, right? It, 
it's very clear at this point that there is no appetite among American policymakers to do another big war like Afghanistan or Iraq, where we invade a country and try to transform its society and remake it into a democratic country functionally through force of will and and the power of the U.S. military. That that kind of aggressive neoconservative approach died with the Bush administration. The question now is whether the framework that succeeded it under both Obama and Trump in a lot of ways of a kind of targeted counterterrorism all over the world will continue to persist in the next decade of American foreign policy. Right. So Afghanistan, as, as currently practiced by the U.S., was part of a broader effort to put a small number of troops in different places in order to ensure that no terrorist group ever threatens the United States ever again. You know, you can kill them wherever they are, and maybe they'll recruit more people, but you can constantly play whack-a-mole. There's a term that the Israeli military uses for somewhat similar thinking called mowing the grass, or if not the military, then certainly it's it's popular in Israeli strategic discourse to describe its frequent wars against the Hamas militant group in the Gaza Strip. And, you know, that, that functionally, though the American government wouldn't really admit it, has become an overarching paradigm, which wasn't the case before 9-11. Uh, and so are we going to keep fighting in places like Yemen and Somalia where we're intervening not like in the in a sort of big war kind of way, but occasionally periodically using drones and special forces raids to try to kill people that we deem a threat to the United States and limit those groups' growth? Like that that's the real underlying forever war, right? And ending the fighting in Afghanistan in terms of like U.S. ground combat troops is one thing. Ending the paradigm that leads to this kind of perpetual intervention and fighting is a, a kind of different thing altogether. And it's not clear to me that Biden's thinking on Afghanistan is going to carry over to the broader vestigial war on terror. Well, it actually seems, you know, to be somewhat the opposite. If you, you know, consider the yeah. fact that they are literally trying to set up basing agreements and and rights in, as Alex said, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, et cetera in the region to try to make sure they still have the ability to carry out counterterror missions in Afghanistan as needed and to address any threat that's coming from there. So it seems like they are, you know, very much continuing that kind of posture. At the same time, right, there are lots of places where we aren't, you know, we could theoretically be a lot more active if we wanted to be, and we aren't, right? Like, we are not, we don't have a massive troop presence to fight Boko Haram. We do not have a, you know, massive, massive troop presence in lots of other places where there are ongoing terror threats. And I think a lot of that has to do, too, with the fact that al-Qaeda is actually very much diminished. And the mission of al-Qaeda and, you know, the, the focus was very different from a lot of, you know, more traditional terrorist groups in that it was, you know, the far enemy, right? It was attacking America to get America to withdraw from the Middle East to withdraw, you know, support for dictators, and then they could go in and then topple those dictators that they actually opposed. And, you know, we, we've addressed this on the show before, but while we are trying to leave parts of the Middle East, right, we are, you know, the greater Middle East, if you want to consider Afghanistan part of the greater, you know, Middle East, as it sometimes is called, right, we are, you know, drawing down troops in lots of places. So, you know, the question is whether these other groups are going to continue you know, the fight or see the United States as the continued kind of far enemy to the degree that they need to keep targeting 
in a serious and kind of grand way in the way that 9-11 was. And so I think, you know, a lot of these, these splinter groups and these affiliate groups are much more concerned with fighting their local kind of conflicts. So, you know, Ash-Shabaab in Somalia is much more concerned with trying to control parts of Somalia than it is with trying to, you know, attack New York City, for instance. So I think, you know, the question of, of how much we actually need to continue those missions will continue to see potentially a diminishment of that or, you know, only focusing on specific areas like Yemen, et cetera. So I, I, I think part of that will actually speak to like the evolution of the terror threat itself. I kind of have maybe a more expansive view of this, uh, and I want to give some credit to, actually a lot of credit to Spencer Ackerman of the Daily Beast, who tweeted uh, a thought along these lines and then a smart article on it, which we'll link to. But Biden, in his speech, was clear that like the wars like Afghanistan should probably end. Like America shouldn't do this kind of thing again. But he was pretty hawkish on terrorists are still a problem that we have to deal with. I want to read a very quick excerpt from his speech. Over the past 20 years, the threat has become more dispersed, metastasizing around the globe. Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al-Nusra in Syria, ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq, and establishing affiliates in multiple countries in Africa and Asia. With the terror threat now in many places, keeping thousands of troops grounded and concentrated in just one country at a cost of billions each year makes little sense to me and to our leaders. And that sounds to me like a pretty full-throated defense of maybe, you know, Focusing a lot of our efforts in just Afghanistan doesn't make sense, but focusing it elsewhere around the world to deal with a metastasized threat makes sense to me. And that, you know, correlates with what he was feeling in the Obama years, and it seems to it seems like he's continued that thought process now, that America should and probably will continue to be for a really long time a counterterrorism nation. It's just a thing we do now. The war on terror is just our, our MO. <laughs> it's our SOP. It's what we do. GWAT SOP. Um... And I feel like I, that's just not going to go away. And it makes sense. There are terrorist threats against the United States. Intelligence officials said that this week. Like, you know, they're still planning stuff. They might not be able to pull it off, but there's still efforts to hurt America and hurt Americans uh, and our allies. And so if we have the assets and the ability to go after terrorists everywhere, why shouldn't we? It's not that costly. I mean, you know, troops, <laughs> let's be clear, troops will die. Um, and But we already are in, you know, multiple countries, like a lot of countries doing this counterterrorism work and building up uh, foreign forces to deal with them. So I just feel like this is going to, we are just a counterterrorism nation. That's just what we are and what we're going to keep doing even after Afghanistan. I want to push back just a little bit on that um, before before we end. And that is, you know, when I heard that part of the speech, to me, that sounded like a speech that could have been given five, six, seven years ago. You know, maybe not specifically with ISIS that long ago, but ISIS doesn't have a caliphate anymore. They're not that threat that they were. And yet he's, presenting it in that speech as if, you know, the Nusra front in, in Syria is a massive threat to the United States when it's still part of the Syrian civil war. And that war's, you know, Assad has kind of conquered a huge chunk back and the stuff that he hasn't, Turkey kind of has. And, you know, it's, it's not actually that accurate of a picture of what the terror threat looks like right now. AQAP, sure. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, sure. They are, you know, held up as like, well, they are the ones that are still kind of carrying the core Al-Qaeda mission because they, you know, tried to get bombs through on planes. But that was like a decade ago. It's been a while since any of those groups have had any sort of, you know, plot come anywhere close to, to succeeding or to getting toward America. And, you know, very much part of ISIS's mission was 
you should come here and hang out with us in our caliphate. And if you can't, then you can do some attacks at home. But it was not necessarily like they were trying to train people to go to America and carry out attacks, right? They were building a literal caliphate. So I think Biden seems to not totally have an accurate picture of what the threat looks like now. And it is very, like, it's like a weirdly outdated model. And that's what I was getting at, where, yes, he very much does seem to think that this is something important. But when you... You know, when the rubber meets the road, when you look down at a map and start to figure out where to deploy those assets, I think he's going to start to realize that, well, maybe we don't need to have as many assets in, you know, X, Y country because, well, they're kind of tangled up in their own civil wars or their own conflicts and they're not super focused on America. That doesn't mean no one is, but I I just don't think that's a very accurate picture. Just because it doesn't make a lot of sense doesn't mean it won't be our policy, though. See Afghanistan the last 20 years. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh (laughs) On that note. Yeah, I was about to say that the remarking on the strategic incoherence of American foreign policy is, is really an evergreen topic and a good place to end this week's Worldly. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, uh, for stitching this together into a coherent audio product that you all like to enjoy. I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, the podcast places. That's where you should be doing the reviewing and the rating. We really appreciate it. And again, uh, we're going to do another questions episode at one point. So if you're if you're still interested in us answering any questions you might have, send us an email at worldly at voxvox.com. And, you know, we'll, we'll try to get your questions onto the show and answer them on air. For now, uh, see you next week. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty, and it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.